you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Welcome, everybody, to the inaugural Walk the Talk America podcast. We're going to call it WTTA from now on just because it rolls off the tongue a little bit better. And uh, I'm stoked that we're doing this, Mike. I'm Jake Wiskirchen, for uh, those of you who don't know what this voice uh, sounds like. And uh, along with me is Mike Sedini, the founder of Walk the Talk America. What's up, Mike? That's right. I'm excited, too. Uh, We talked about doing this for a while, and it's nice to see it finally happening. How cool Uh, is our intro music, by the way? Very cool. It's Super very cool. cool. I love our intro music. <laughs> I love it. It's got a very, to me, a gang star, very happy, like Big Daddy Kane vibe to it. Did you also, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I definitely agree with the gang star reference, but I also thought uh, grammatic was, uh, was something I, that jumped out at me and uh, maybe like some felonious monk kind of stuff. But, um, Anyway, we're not here to talk about music. We're here to talk about guns and mental health. And if you're listening to this podcast, that's probably why you're uh, tuning in. I don't know if you tune in. People don't tune in anymore. They, they download. They download and they listen. <laughs> yes, they do. So our job here is to help illuminate the different uh, quote-unquote sides, if you will, to guns and mental health. And those are two different cultures that have uh, – I've repeatedly said this in many different forums – They've long stood across a self-imposed chasm uh, whereby blame shifting happens when tragedy strikes, right? The tragedy hits, it involves a gun, uh, gun community blames the mental illness, mental health community blames the gun, nothing happens. Everybody goes, they should do something. Well, we are they. We are the they, you know, the capital T-H-E-Y, and we are doing something. And you founded this organization uh, two years ago now, is when we were recording this in 2020, but... Uh, if you're listening a little bit later on and you're just discovering us, Mike founded it in, in spring of 2018 because you decided that you needed to do something, hashtag, hashtag do something, and not just sit by and watch more tragedy unfold and more blame shifting occur. So tell the, because this is our inaugural podcast and we can often you know reference people back to this if they want to know what we're about, they can hear it in your own words. Why'd you f- start the organization in the first place? Well, I started the organization because I've always been a big believer in, you know, don't just defend your second amendment rights, do something right. And and I think that uh, people in the two a, which is the second amendment community, I think for years we have always been under attack and we've always felt like, you know, Hey, we can't really, you know, people say we want solutions or, you know, at least provide something. Um, but it was a chance meeting, right? I had a chance meeting with uh, a lady that my national sales manager and I invited to sit with us and have dinner at this crowded restaurant in New Orleans. And she didn't know anything about firearms. So she said, Hey, listen, uh, what happens during a mass shooting? Like, how does it affect you guys as the firearms industry? And we both said the same thing. We're like, everybody blames us. 
we blame mental health and nothing ever happens. And she asked one question and that changed my life, right? The question was, how do you work with the mental health community if you know the answer, if you know that that's the issue, right? Um, or you think that's the issue. And we kind of reeled backwards and we're like, we don't, right? And then, then that was that light bulb moment. Like, okay, here's something we can do, right? Because I always thought as the 2A people in the firearms industry, uh, we are good people. We actually do a lot for uh, conservation of wildlife. There's some things that we do. And I think like this was a way for me to, to build something to get us a spot at the table to find solutions. So that's really what the heart of it was. And then you and I linked up because I host another podcast that I've done for some time now called Noggin Notes, which is a mental health podcast. And I have a, one of my best friends since college. He manages his mom's gun range and retail store here in Reno, Nevada. It's called Reno Guns and Range. And for years, Jordan and I have talked about, you know, this very topic, which is how do we connect gun culture with mental health culture? And we've hemmed and hawed for, for ages. And then finally, one day he texts me, he goes, have you heard of Walk the Talk American? I said, no. And, uh, you know, I have a smartphone, so I Googled it. And uh, I found them, which is you. And uh, I always put air quotes around that. And so uh, I looked up uh, I looked up them and how to contact them and sent them an email and uh, you responded very quickly and I invited you to be on the podcast because I thought that was a pretty cool topic and yada yada three hours later we were BFFs and we had a our first podcast and that was quite some time ago that was spring of 2019 some months after that, I found myself on the board for Walk the Talk and my company, which is a mental health outpatient practice called Zephyr Wellness here in Northern Nevada, we uh, entered into a formal MOU, Memorandum of Understanding with WTTA, and we have helped to drive the conversation, at least in the clinical community. And so for those of you who don't know, Mike lives in Las Vegas, which is Southern Nevada, I'm in Reno Sparks area, which is Northern Nevada. And if you're not familiar, uh, we don't just hop over the highway to each other. Uh, Reno and Reno and Vegas are separated by about a six and a half hour drive or a 55 to one hour and five minute flight. And, um, so we are quite some, some distance apart, but we share a state and we decided that we were going to focus on our state first, because as we found this stuff unfolding nationally, uh, there were a lot of people asking and, and they continue to ask like, you know, how do I get some of that where I am, which is really cool. And what they're referencing is, and what Zephyr brings to the table is we are teaching gun culture competence classes to mental health practitioners. Why this is important is because from the clinical angle, uh, my community has long just kind of, stood apart from guns and said, uh, we don't really need to know much about that. Uh, we've made our minds up and, uh, we don't, we don't need to understand it. And, and to, to me, that's not only professionally offensive because we are supposed to espouse lifelong learning. We're supposed to be a bunch of people in a profession who is always, you know, examining blind spots and moving forward and learning constantly and growing in our capacity to treat everybody who walks through the door. So being incompetent in a certain culture is wholly unacceptable to me. But also I found a Pew research study that showed that approximately 47% of 
Americans either own a gun or lives, live with somebody who does. Now we're recording this in the um, current COVID-19 environment, uh, which has also seen uh, some massive social justice pushes with uh, protests for Black Lives Matter and even rioting. And what we know through the first half of 2019 is that gun sales have expanded dramatically, like historically disproportionate to what gun sales have ever been, which means that that 47% number is not even accurate anymore. Um, it's probably north of 50, if not even higher. And that basically boils down to half of our clientele, right? So we can reasonably assume that if I'm a mental health practitioner, half of my clients will either own a gun or know somebody who, or, or live somebody who does, right? So we need to understand what this is about, particularly as it pertains to suicide prevention. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but I want to kick it back to Mike because you have a particular tie to this um, suicide prevention aspect, but that's not how Walk the Talk started. No, it's, it's not how it started. It is a great way to kind of honor that. Um, in 2009, the president of the company I owned, which is Eagle Imports, which is a big distributor, we distributed firearms, basically acted as a turnkey operation for foreign manufacturers that weren't big enough to have their own manufacturing in the United States. Uh, the president of the company, who's a good dear friend of my family's as well, uh, took his own life with a firearm one night after what he believed was a tragic event. Um, he had gotten a DUI and for some reason that triggered him. Um, I don't know. He never had any kind of suicidal ideation before that. Um, you know, there was none of the warning signs. Uh, we had just spent a, a month on the road together, uh, which was tough and we made future plans together. And then that happened over Memorial day weekend. And it's something where, because we don't talk about or address mental health in the firearms community back then, um, we just kind of moved on. It was like the red elephant in the room that you didn't want to talk about. And we didn't even process, you know, looking back on it now, I'm not who I am today. Right. So I became the president of my own company uh, because of that tragic incident. And my team and I just moved forward. You know, we, we, I, we did things like remodeled the entire office um, and just kept it moving and didn't talk about it. Um, but that, you know, there's a lot of inspiration now for what I'm doing. It, it, you know, now I look back and it's dedicated to Bill, you know, Bill was, was a huge part of my life and it was something that hits home, right? Uh, suicide by firearm, which we are plagued with in the industry um, because many combat vets and first responders or just regular vets, um, they, they come to our community uh, to find jobs and also to hang out, right? It's a trusted community with those particular jobs. Um, and we lose more than anybody. I mean, you know the saying, 22 a day. And I know that, you know, people talk it about varies, it. It varies, yeah. Yeah, it varies. But it doesn't matter. It's a concept, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's really high. And that's one of the kind of ironic things about, you know, all these years of not really addressing it from the firearms community because of our fear of losing your gun rights is, you know, we were suffering the most, um, you know, people were just dropping out and there was no discussion about it. You know, we've come a long way since 2009. 
So we have, and, and the, um, I think the 22 a day deserves an explanation. There's a website, it's called 22 a day. And what it refers to is at one point or another, there was an average suicide rate of veterans who killed themselves by, at a rate of 22 per day. And, uh, like we said, that number fluctuates sometimes it's down as low as, and I put that in air quotes too, 17, um, or as high as like 24, but, um, either way it's absurd and it needs to stop. And uh, so our, our work has started to touch lots of different professions and, um, and it's really, it's really important to us. Um, but you initially started, I was like, wanting to like stop the next mass shooter because that was hot on the radar a few years ago. I mean, it still is, I guess, but you know, flavor of the week as news media cycles roll. Um, but that's statistically insignificant and it sounds heartless to say something like that. Um, but the simple fact is, and I, and I have a journalism degree from undergrad, so I can kind of speak to this a little bit. Um, news media, push whatever sells newspapers that's historical and these days it's just whatever sells clicks because that's where advertising goes so what sells clicks well emotionally triggering events and that's a that's a, a limbic thing in the brain the limbic system responds to uh, threats such as you know fear provoking incidents or or excitement if you want to sell something to you know compete with your neighbor or whatever uh, so we're, we're purposely pushing emotional stuff through the media to sell advertising. That's not a secret. It's been around forever. There's no conspiracy there. Um, so what we find is that mass shootings are horrifying in their nature because they are so fear provoking because of their uncertain nature and their unpredictability. And the fact that they take lots of lives simultaneously, just like a plane crash might. Um, everybody wants to read about that stuff that almost nobody wants to read about the daily suicide rate. And uh, for us, and I'll, I'll just finish this thought and then Mike can tell you why mass shootings are not the target of WTTA. Um, in Las Vegas on the 1st of October of 2017, we had the largest deadliest mass shooting in us history. A lot of people don't know the numbers. Uh, 58 people died that day plus the shooter. So for a total of 59, but what we have in America is uh, a suicide by firearm only. That's not all other methods of suicide. Suicide by firearm alone, alone in America on average is 58 a day. We essentially have a 1st of October 2017 shooting every single day in America. Why isn't that covered by news media? It's not, it's not sexy. It doesn't sell ads. Um, it just it just doesn't make headlines. So that's the that's the unspoken gorilla, the five hundred pound gorilla that you know sleeps wherever he wants. Well, suicides sleep in everybody in everybody's community. Um, but what are we focused on? Well, mass shootings because they're sexy and uh, sensationalized. But Mike, you discovered that you can't stop a mass shooting, as it turns out. Yeah. And being naive back then kind of worked to my advantage because I was able to kind of navigate, uh, you know, in, in the mental health world. And you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I was, I was calling mental health professionals that are highly decorated, if you will, guys like Dr. Jeffrey Swanson out of Duke University. Um, and I would pitch them the idea for WTTA. And what I really wanted to do was you know, like you said, stop the next mass shooter. I wanted the firearms industry to be a hero. 
um, and something that, you know, we could say, Hey, we help provide the money for mental health to go out there and stop this. And guys like Swanson were telling me, uh, no, just focus on suicide. And I'm like, okay, that's great. Like I want to do suicide as well, but I really want to do mental health. Like I, w- I want to do outreach to stop mass shooters. And he kept saying, no, 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 just bring it back to suicide. Cause finding the next, you know, mass shooter is basically finding a needle in the haystack. Um, which, you know, it's funny to this day, I still, I still enjoy casting such a wide net uh, to maybe catch that potential mass oh, shooter. For sure. But, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But um, so it never stopped that desire, but it did make me change my focus. Um, and it's really interesting because uh, there was a level of frustration that I had when I first started sitting down with mental health professionals, Debbie Plotnick, who's the vice president of mental health America, you know, obviously talking to Swanson and others um, and, and, kind of saying, okay, if I go get you the money, what are, what are the programs? Like, what are the things that we could fund to help stop this? And at the time they were like, well, we don't really have those. And I'm like, but you say that if we, if you had money, you'd do this. And I, I realized like, okay, it's not possible. Like there's nothing you really can do. You can try, but, but there's nothing. They're like, we could write these things. And I'm like, well, no, no, I just want to do the ones you already have. I don't want to recreate the wheel. Right. Um, So then at uh, SHOT Show in 2018 or 2019, right? That's two SHOT Shows ago. SHOT, by the way, for the uninitiated uh, is an acronym that stands for Shooting, Hunting, Outdoors, Trade, Show. Yes. It's an acronym, SHOT. SHOT Show. It's the the world's largest or second largest uh, shooting, hunting, outdoor sports uh, trade show. It happens in Las Vegas annually. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what Mike's referencing. We like to, we like to, um, clarify lingo and acronyms where we can, but anyway, well, go on. And, sir. We ha- and we have to now, right? Because we're bringing mental health and firearms together. Right. So it's right. like stepping out of the echo chamber. Yep, so yep. sometimes I forget, <laughs> but um, echo stands for, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. So I'm at the shot show and, and, and this is actually kind of a funny story. Um, I, they, you know, this thing's blowing up, but we don't really have what we're not where we're at today, right? Now, today, Walk Talk America has a bunch of programs and policies and things like that, that we, they're ours. They're, they're, they've come from within, within the firearms community with the help of mental health, giving, you know, advice or, or passing along good information. But uh, one of my board members had recommended bringing in a consultant. And uh, I was so super confident in what we were doing. I was like, okay, I'll take the meeting with the consultant at SHOT Show. But, you know, I really, you know, I always looked at consultants in the past and I'm like, yeah, what is he going to tell me that I don't already know? Right. I was, like I said, two years ago, I was still naive. I grow every year. But um, we go out the night before and I'm telling him about the concept. And his name was John Williams from Powell Strategies. And the, we, the reason why I'm saying his name is because he ended up helping me uh, and helping this organization get to where it is today. Um, but John, I go out and we're drinking and, you know, I'm telling him about what my plan is and what we're doing. And um, the next day we have a board meeting and I bring John into the board meeting and John sits down and basically just, shakes up my board like we were all we ended up all start fighting with each other <laughs> um, i was not a part of that by the way at that you were time. not yeah you were not part of the board at this time but it was funny because rob pinkus was there and he gets up because he had to go he had to go make an appearance but he said uh 
you know, I really think this organization needs to really think about creating their own programs, like, like John was recommending as opposed to giving, cause he's like, anyone could give money to mental health. Right. And I was really frustrated cause I was kind of like, I just watched my board go into pieces in my idea. Um, like somebody just pricked your balloon. Yes. And I, you know, this was the first time that it happened. I mean, I had only gone to certain events and people were just all about supporting what I was doing. Um, but then John came out and, um, you know, worked with us. And even at the time, like I still thought it was a waste of time. And I remember one time, like John had actually said to me, man, I wish I, I wish I had never talked to you. I wish I'd never met you because I feel like you're disappointed in the direction of this is going. But I was just trying to explain to John, look, you know, I'm a one man show basically with support of the people on my board. Um, so like everything that he was doing, you know, was on this kind of like you have a whole staff of people working, but if it wasn't for John kind of shaking it up at that moment, um, we wouldn't be where we are at today. And I actually had to go back to John and almost, well, apologize and say like, you, you don't know how far you've gotten walk the talk since we, we walked away from each other and you kind of were like, I, I kind of wish I never had stepped into your guys's life. <laughs> like I caused more harm than good. But w what he did was really make me confident in the things we do. So it changed the whole landscape of walk to talk America. And now everything that we do is, is we could be proud as like the second amendment to a gun culture people to really beat our chest to be like, we made this, we created yeah. this. It's ours. There's an interesting parallel that you mentioned there with as far as like John walking in and shaking up the board and inadvertently uh, throwing everything into chaos and what happens in psychotherapy. People, I think, are oftentimes afraid of coming into counseling because they don't want somebody like me to go rooting around in their life and having them examine everything uh, because that's scary because you end up having to reconsider everything that you thought you knew. And in some ways that happens. Yes. And we do have, you know, in our consent forms, we have an attestation that says, I understand that I'm engaging in a process that may transform my life and you know, there's risks and benefits thereto pertaining. Um, but it often doesn't happen like that. So, I mean, if I could just quell one myth, if you're out in the, in the gun community and you're listening to this and you're like, that's exactly why I don't want to go to counseling. I don't want to have to question everything I thought I ever knew. Uh, we are much more gentle and methodical than that. And we will only work in the areas that you want us to work, but it is possible that, uh, through this great upheaval comes, um, great success. And that, and that's the whole idea is that we want to help get people out of their paradigms, uh, from both the mental health side and the firearms community side so that they're no longer continuing to believe what they believed from yesteryear and then bringing that potentially false belief with them into the present moment and not helping, right? It's not, it's not helpful if we are, if we remain rigid in our beliefs and you as an organization leader with WTTA uh, had to have somebody come in and shake you up and shake off the rigidity. And from that fear of going, holy cow, I actually don't know what I'm doing. I need to, you know, humble myself and seek some, some consultation. Uh, you've launched this incredible organization that I'm, I'm super happy to be a part of. And I'm, I mean, I talk about it to everybody. I'm wearing my wristband, you know, constantly. And, um, 
And I think we are going to save lives. And I really do believe that beyond just simply saving a life is enhancing a life, right? So we don't just keep people from dying by their own hand, but we help them become non-suicidal and in fact thriving on the other side. That's, that's really important. And that's the mental health component. It's not just suicide prevention, it's intervention, it's postvention, and then it's promotion of, of good life after that. So that you just never suicidal again. Um, and, and I think that's, what's been missing from largely from firearms culture broadly, but then specific professions uh, who may or may not, you know, associate with firearms, certainly police do certainly, um, military personnel do, but then there's uh, all sorts of other professions who view seeking help as a, as a weakness, which it is. You have to admit that you're weak when you seek help because you need strength from somewhere else. It's not a problem, but the problem comes in when you judge weakness as being bad, right? And you don't want to be bad by being weak. And some of those uh, professions include first responders like firefighters and emergency medicine docs, and even uh, like attorneys, um, anybody with a government security clearance who thinks they might get judged for, you know, being uh, quote unquote mentally defective simply because they were struggling with some depression following a divorce or something. Um, we don't need you dying because you don't think there's a way out. That's not appropriate. So we want to get help, um, obviously alleviate the death, but then help people promote themselves into good functioning later, uh, you know, in perpetuity with their spouses and their children and, and their careers and their, and their employees and subordinates and all that stuff. So, um, there's, a, there's a lot we can get into here. I mean, this is just an introductory podcast and, uh, our, uh, one of our good buddies, uh, who's doing our marketing for us right now and helping us with a lot of stuff, website revamps and that, and so forth. He's, he's a bit of an outsider. He knows a little bit about mental health and he knows a little bit about firearms, but to him, this is, um, this is a very cool experiment. And, um, so what he did is he came up with some, uh, frequently asked questions, per- perceptively frequently asked questions. And he was a perfect one to come up with it because he's just barely familiar with both sides of this conversation and not so close to either one that he could come up with some honest, uh, inquisitions, uh, if you, if you, if you will. So, um, what I want to do, Mike, is I want to go through a few of these and answer some of them because they do pop up almost invariably every single time this conversation comes up. So, um, let's just start with the biggest misconceptions that the two a or second amendment community and mental health community have on each other. You go, and then I will go. Okay. So we're, we're afraid that, you know, if we even say something like if I go to get seek help and I'm sitting there talking to my therapist and I say something like, yeah, I just went to the range and shot off a thousand rounds and I feel much better right now that that's going to be taken the wrong way mm-hmm. and not understood. All right. So like, that's a misconception that, that, you know, I guess therapists and mental health professionals are sitting there kind of waiting on every word you say, right. And you could say the wrong thing that could be misconstrued and then all of a sudden rights gone. Let me, let me play devil's advocate before we get into the rights thing. Um, what do you mean by I shot off a thousand rounds and I feel better. And why is that different than say anybody else who wants to come in and seek counseling um, afraid they're going to get judged for whatever they're bringing to the table? 
Well, it's really not different, right? But that's just the, the misconception because most, a lot of people don't understand the, the, the fact that the firearm and going to the range could be something that actually helps people get through their anxiety or their PTSD, right? And it, it, there's always two stories I tell. Um, this is actually in our bio video. Uh, but when I first started Walk the Talk America, um, I, there, a friend of mine called me and said, this girl really wants to meet you. Um, she's, she's, she's really into what you're doing. Um, would, you, would you have lunch with us? Cause she can help with maybe some fundraising and things like that. And um, it was really interesting because I went and I sat down and I was telling her about walk talk America. I, I was just going off right in the beginning. I could talk for 45 minutes straight. You didn't even have to stop me. Um, and you know, after I got done telling her about the organization and all the details, she, she said, uh, I have a story for you. And if I had access to a firearm, I wouldn't be here today which, you know, I, I kind of like jump back for a second because I'm like, oh boy, maybe she's not as pro what I'm up to as I thought. You know, maybe I, maybe I misread this. But she went on to tell this story about how she went through a crisis and she didn't know why, but um, she was very suicidal. And if it wasn't for a doctor who kind of noticed it in her because she had switched doctors and this doctor was really attuned, um, got her the help she needed. But the reason why she was so inspired by walk talk America was because of the stigma piece, right? She actually didn't want to tell anybody cause she didn't want to lose her job and she didn't want to be judged by people. Mm. So the stigma piece really spoke to her. Now that same night uh, I was talking to a combat vet that is now in the firearms industry and he works in PR and I was telling him about the walk the talk America, you know, concept. And he said, uh, I have a story to tell you, but when I came back from Afghanistan, he's like, if I didn't have access to the gun in the range, he's like, I wouldn't be here to tell you the story. And it gave me chills, right? Because you had two completely different people, one super pro gun, the other one, not such a big fan of guns, you know, just probably afraid. Right. But walk the talk America spoke to them both because, you know, of the stigma piece. Now drawing it back to what question you asked that combat vet, he found solace in going to the range and shooting, which a lot of people I don't think understand that because a lot of Americans or a lot of people across the world, right. They never think I'm in a really down you know, I'm in a bad way. Let me go grab my gun and go shoot for therapy purposes. But that is a thing in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, people would be shocked at how many people actually, you know, find it therapeutic to go to the range, put your ear protection on, put your eye protection on, sit there and focus on, on shooting a target. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with going and hurting people. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, I, th I think the the misconception there is that if you if you go into a counselor's office and you sit down and you say, "Hey, my coping skill is range time," that your your counselor is going to pick up the bad phone to the government and turn you in because you're an unstable, crazy person with a gun, and because media pushes unstable, crazy person with a gun as a narrative for danger. 
uh, and we all have to do something to prevent danger and death, right? That uh, you're potentially going to lose your ability to go do that very therapeutic thing that you just described. Uh, unfortunately, that narrative is not a misconception. There are a lot of very highly judgmental people in my own clinical community. And I often say that I had to quote unquote, come out of the closet as a, as a gun owning therapist with my own people um, because I was afraid of being professionally ostracized as uh, you know, one of them and uh, you know, wh whatever them are. And, it, and it's very disappointing to me, but what it really speaks to, and, and I have no judgment here on any of the people who work in the profession of psychotherapy and counseling who don't understand firearms culture. Um, I think that's why our walk talk America comes in. We want to educate. We're not interested in policy decisions that make blanket statements about what should and should not be done in the face of a certain situation. What we want to do is promote education, training and experience such that both quote unquote sides of this conversation are comfortable engaging the other so that the clinician when he or she hears that story does not get squeamish and nervous and actually asks the question, Hey, you know, do you own firearms? Do you find any joy in them? Do you shoot them? That should be a normal conversation when we're trying to, when we're trying to troubleshoot coping strategies or coping skills for some of you struggling with a mental illness. We do this all the time where we, we, we reach into our bag of tricks and we go, have you tried taking a walk? Have you tried exercise? Have you tried, you know, uh, picking up a hobby? Do you, do you still go snowboarding? Do you do gardening? Nobody. And I mean, nobody in my community asks, do you shoot guns? Right. And that should be a normal question to ask when we're talking about what's a potential coping strategy, especially because clap, clap. And I have to do that because in case you couldn't hear the claps come through the microphone. Um, Roughly half of our clients are going to be gun owners or live with somebody who does. That's a reasonable outlet. It's probably actually more reasonable than asking somebody to do yoga, which requires often a subscription to go to the yoga studio and endeavoring into a new hobby altogether. And also have physically be able to do that. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, we know people in wheelchairs who shoot guns. Right. And it's very therapeutic and it's quite a release. And for those of you who don't understand, we can get into it later at, on different podcasts. But, um, but that is, it's a misconception that, that you can't get mental health treatment because uh, your hobby interferes with that. Um, please, 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 for the love of God, don't do that. And if you encounter a clinician because you're honestly trying to seek help for yourself, uh, if you encounter a clinician who seems a little judgmental, about the gun thing, please educate them. Like give them my card. I'll go educate them if, <laughs> if you want. Um, but we gotta, we gotta clear up these misconceptions. We certainly, the major misconception standing in the way, and this is 100% of misconception. We can't take your guns. Counselors can't take your guns. Um, there may be certain laws that allow us the leeway to, to, you know, intervene in some fashion. If we think you're an imminent harm to somebody or somebody else or yourself, but we ourselves have so many ethical codes that are oftentimes woven into law that prohibit us from breaching your confidentiality for the purpose of restricting your constitutional rights. That if we ever were to do that, we would be out of a job 
instantly because you would sue us and rightfully so for that very inappropriate overreach. So don't let that misconception stand in the way of getting help. Help. Um, and I think we touched on the second half of that conversation of that question, which is what are misconceptions the mental health community have, have about, you know, firearms owners. I encountered this once with a student who want, <laughs> she very innocently and appropriately asked me uh, it because she heard had dealt with a parent who said he went out shooting with his kids uh, and wondered if she needed to call CPS. That was the only information given. Do I need to call CPS because this guy went out shooting with his kids? <laughs> well, how old are the kids? Well, four and six. And I said, well, were they shooting the guns? She goes, I don't think so. I think he was just shooting. I said, okay, why would you call CPS? Well, I don't know. I just, I just assumed guns shouldn't be around children. And I was like, holy cow, we need some education here. Um, Cause that's not a thing. And so that's a misconception that just because you have children and guns uh, that somehow risk is inherent and I guess risk is inherent in everything, but like we don't need to go calling child protective services and ruining people's lives because we're trying to teach our kids gun safety. In fact, Reno guns and range right here in town starts gun classes at age five. So um, I've taken my own kids out to shoot and uh, taught them properly how to shoot with proper protection and so forth. So um, that is one misconception. If you're a mental health practitioner listening to this going, Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that kids could shoot guns. Yes, 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 they absolutely can. They cannot walk into a store and buy a gun, um, but they absolutely should be taught early on the safety of how to handle firearms. Yeah, that's still a big issue. Um, I'm going to tell a funny story. Uh, when we were first negotiating with Mental Health America, you know, trying to get this partnership going, um, we were all on a conference call with them and Rob Pincus, you know, board member, trainer of the stars, whatever, <laughs> everybody that's in the firearms industry knows trainer to the stars, trainer to the stars. <laughs> yeah, right. Trainer to the stars. Um, you know, he, he, he's so passionate about this. And I remember like, he probably wasn't the best person to have on a conference call with mental health America when we were doing the feeling out period uh, for the simple fact that like there are certain things he wanted from them. Um, he wanted them to come out with a statement that said, you know, there's no issue with children shooting firearms. And I remember like <laughs> they, they just refused to do it. They're like, look, yeah. we're not saying there is an issue. There's not, but this is not, we, you know, don't, kind of crowbar us into making this statement that we don't know if it's true or not. You know, of course me, I'm looking at the situation like Rob, this is not the time, man. Like we'll, <laughs> we'll teach them, we'll educate them in the future. You know, yeah. Rob, Rob's like, of course, in Rob pick his fashion. He's like, there's nothing wrong with a kid with a, his, his dad's AR 15 shooting it into a side of a mountain. And I'm like, yep. thinking, there, there is nothing wrong with that right now, but that's not something we need to just have them come out and say, yeah, we'll release a joint statement with you. Right. Rob is, I, to me, it was more like, look, if they ever get there, which I'm sure will help them get there, they'll release that statement on their own time and period. But maybe that's not the statement that they need to release. Yeah. And, and, and that's just not knowing, right. That's, that's just people who, you know, very obviously have not ever encountered, um, 
being on a range, being out in the desert, uh, being, you know, in the forest with, you know, with a safe backdrop and children around and an instructor to tell them how. So, you know, and I get that. I understand. I have a lot of compassion for people who've just never been around firearms. Um, having Hollywood imagery in their heads, um, it, it's totally, totally reasonable, totally reasonable. And it's totally reasonable to want to let go of that too. If somebody like me or you comes along and goes, actually, that's, that's not true. Would you like me to tell you that life is not John Wick? <laughs> right. right. I mean, think about, just think about like for every, you know, gun community individual that understands uh, competition shooting. I mean, yeah. there's 10 year old little girls that, I mean, what they can They're do. With shoot me. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, these are things that, you know, my thought process was, okay, like we're going to bring mental health America to the shot show. Uh, we're going to bring them into, you know, they want to come into our community to learn, you know, these are things that we can talk about later, you know, that they could see, okay, kids and firearms, there's a place for that. You know, think of, think of the work that Yehuda does, right. And yeah. Bob's children's book, you know, like, um, Yehuda is the pew pew Jew on Instagram. Yehuda Raymer, for those of you who don't know, uh, you can look him up. R E M E R is his last name. Y E H U D A is how you spell his first name, but he's the pew pew Jew. Yeah, he, I mean, the work he does with his books and, you know, educating the youth and, you know, and that's the approach. You know, I think that's how you, you slowly get people to understand. I mean, I, through this journey, there's been so many people that when I first met them have come such a long way in understanding firearms. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's Debbie and I, uh, Debbie Plotnick from, from mental health America. Uh, she's the vice president. It, it, she will send me an article and before she makes a judgment on that article, she'll say, well, maybe I should ask Mike. I, am I missing awesome. something here? Right. Which that's, that's awesome. Right. Like, seeing a bunch of people show up to the Capitol um, brandishing firearms. Now, regardless of whether you are, you agree with that, you know, cause that's an open carry issue. Um, but some people just automatically think this isn't good. And then you have to explain to them, well, it is a right and they're exercising that right. And they're there to peacefully exercise that right. Yeah. And, and speaking of misinformation and, and I guess misconceptions, the, the two are different. There's difference between misinformation and misconception. Misconception is a belief that's inaccurate, often based on misinformation. Misinformation is um, passed along through many channels, right? So uh, if you look on TV and you see a bunch of armed people uh, forming as their First Amendment allows them to do, uh, you know, to assemble peaceably in a public square, um, and simultaneously carry their Second Amendment right with them, you know, with a, with a firearm, uh, those are those are backed by the Constitution. It doesn't really matter what you think about it because um, your opinion really doesn't matter. What matters is what's in law. And, and I think too often people tend to conflate uh, opinion with with fact, and um, and it gets a little spooky around the Second Amendment because the Second Amendment has to do with guns. Guns are designed to kill. Um, that's their chief, you know, design. Uh, it was, they were designed to war like back in the 1500s or 1300s when gunpowder was invented, um, to defend 
and how do you defend with force? Uh, so like there's a, there's a, there's an absolutely built in history, no matter how much, you know, people want to water this down and go, ah, there's for sport and they're for target. Yeah. Okay. Fine. But the, the, I guess you can call them the quote unquote anti-gun crowd or the anti-second Amendment crowd. And I don't, I don't necessarily care to label people, but um, the idea is that they'll say, ah, guns are designed for killing. Yes. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. And they need to be treated with such respect. Now you look at something like the first amendment where it's, you know, freedom of uh, speech, religion, press, and right to peaceably assemble. Um, those don't seem quite so quote unquote harmful. And so maybe we don't really need restrictions on them. And so goes the, the, the line of thinking. Um, and yet there's an, a long held adage that says that the power of the pen is mightier than the sword. So if we make a rough analogy to journalism being more powerful than firearms, uh, how much, how much influence has the media had and who would howl if somebody came out and said, you better, you can peaceably assemble, but you better not write on this. You better not report on this. Turn off your camera. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're infringing on my first amendment rights. Um, for some reason, there's this weird mental hurdle, and I think it has to do with emotional functioning, where the idea is that printing something in, in, a, in a paper or on a blog or documenting on video is somehow more safe than just walking around with a, with a firearm. And that can be debated. What cannot be debated is the constitutional enshrinement of all those rights. So... If, if we're going to go that direction and say, you know, rights should be restricted, well, then we need to examine what rights under what circumstances and so forth. And I know there's probably people out there, I've been doing this long enough to know that people are going to say, well, there's time, place, and manner restrictions on freedom of speech. And yes, there are. And there's time, place, and manner restrictions on carrying a firearm. And some of those are um, don't carry it in a government building, um, you know, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't sell it to somebody under the age of 18 or 21, depending on where your locality is, because, you know, children are still children and they need adult supervision. We don't give them driver's licenses either. Um, so there's, there's lots of considerations to be made. It's not that, that gun rights are just fully unrestricted. Um, but the idea is that it is a right. Uh, the right to defend oneself is, uh, endowed by the creator, uh, however you want to interpret that. And, we, we at Walk Talk America are not interested in policy decisions that uh, make broad sweeping categorizations on any of this stuff. What we want is education and education is very frightening for a lot of people because it means inherently that you have to let go of the policy restrictions that would otherwise take someone's behaviors and confine them and instead defer to their understanding and their learning which is what you just highlighted. You're like, I'm, I'm helping teach people uh, like Debbie who came into this not knowing anything. And she's now, you know, said, uh, you know what, I'm, before I run with this thing, I'm going to check with the guy I know who's in this you know, community. And, and God willing, we do that with most topics with which we're unfamiliar. If I don't know much about transgender rights issues, I would want to go seek out my local uh, transgender allies group tag as it's known in Reno before I go forward an article on something that has to do with transgender rights. I'm not, I'm just not in that community. It's not, it's not my, it's not my vein. It's not my bailiwick. Um, and, and we would want to continually expand our knowledge rather than resorting to emotionally reflexive policies, you know? So, so that's not what walk talk about is about. Walk talk is not about 
policy advocacy, but we have to acknowledge that there's policies in place that cause problems and put up barriers to both mental health and guns. Uh, and those are, those are important barriers to acknowledge and address. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I do the same thing. You know, you talked about like you'd go, you reference tag. I, I go to armed equality, I go to Piper. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Piper's great. Yeah, I, I, it's just, and that's what I think the smartest way to handle it is because they're going to give you the best information. Even if you totally still don't see it that way, right? It's always good to check in and get that that information it help maybe maybe it softens a stance that you have or you're just about to blurt out something totally ignorant yeah uh, yeah, yeah you, you don't have to agree to be sensitive to somebody else's perspective right um you don't have to be all in on their on their angle or their investment in order to avoid offense you know we, we want to be respectful and we want to educate um doesn't mean we all have to like agree on everything then what would we have like a a homogenous community that doesn't have any diversity that that would be kind of silly yeah it's it the second amendment you know a friend of mine kenny barlow said this it's one of the most like open inviting amendments there are right so to everyone like as long as you're pro-gun or you're pro-2a right so no matter what group if you if you're black lives matter and you feel like you're you know being hunted in the streets by police well, arm up, come on in, let's talk about it. You know, like those, uh, you know, if you're, you're transgender and you feel like transgender uh, individuals do not get armed, transgender individuals do not get messed with, come on in. Like, let's go. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting umbrella, tent, if you will. And I, th- I think it's not unlike any other constitutional amendment tent, uh, the, the right to vote. As, as long as you go. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, it, it's, it's just, things have been politicized, right? And uh, you, it's really tough to politicize an enshrined right in the constitution of the country. Um, people try to do it, but there are mechanisms in law for challenging that. And one of them is not on Twitter. Uh, you know, so if you, if you want to change, if you want to change the second amendment, you want to say, all right, we, we don't need guns anymore. Fine. Go, go through Congress, get approval, get two thirds of the states to, or, you know, two thirds of Congress, three quarters of the states to approve the constitutional amendment. Uh, that, that's the way you go about it. You don't go about through these, uh, fiat policies that vary from state to state and county to county and city to city and region to region. Um, because that just makes it confusing for everybody. And then you end up with court battles and all sorts of stuff. And I think that's why there's there's such a weird commonality is because among all the the, the political differences, like I don't care what your tax rate is, um, but we can all agree that uh, freedom of the press and freedom not to be searched and seized and uh, freedom of uh, against uh, self indictment and uh, and freedom of, you know to have due process and all that stuff is like that's not that's not even a, a debatable topic for some reason Second Amendment right has become debatable. Um, and I, and again, I highlighted this earlier, I think it's because there's a perceived danger that the guns are, are more dangerous than losing due process, which is a little weird to me because, um, if you lose your due process, which is, uh, you know, fifth and 14th amendments, for example, um, then you just end up in jail and you don't have a trial. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, like freedom restriction being thrown in a cage sounds, uh, worse to me than the accidental discharge possibility, but we're getting a little off topic and we don't need to be debating constitutionality. But, right. <laughs> so, There's a good segue in there though, too, because I yeah. think one of the uh, uh, 
something that you just said, and this is get us back on topic, right? Cause you're talking about misconceptions. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions that mental health professionals and people that run in that area, suicide prevention have about gun people is that we're not safe. Right. And yeah. we're the most safest people on the planet. I tell this story all the time. I've been on uh, shows. I was on Colin Noir's show when he, when he had an NRA TV show and I was showing the guns, the, the guns that Eagle Imports brought into the country mm-hmm. and sold to civilians. And I was muzzle flashing my camera. And <laughs> <laughs> sure enough. People tell tell me what muzzle flashing is, by the way. Oh, muzzle flash is when you basically run the, the barrel and you point a gun at somebody. That's the best way to describe yeah. it. You're, inadvertently, or you do it on purpose, but you know people do it all the time. But like gun people, if you go to gun shows, that's a big no-no. Even if the gun is unloaded, most of the time, people would be like, don't muzzle flash. Like, stop. Mm-hmm. But sure enough, like in the, the comments when I was on Colin's show, they're like, when this guy muzzle flashes. But like, I have no problem with that. I chuckle, right? But yeah. that's... And I think that's been the biggest issue is that there's this misconception that the Second Amendment community and the people that, you know, are in it and they live it and it's a lifestyle, a cultural lifestyle, are unsafe. Yeah. Are there some that do dumb stuff? Yes, absolutely. But for the most part, I think that's been part of the problem with us communicating with each other is because the, the mental health person comes in and is like, I want to talk to the gun store and the, and the people in there about being safe. And we're like, well, we're some of the safest. I mean, that's trigger discipline, all this stuff that we do that we talk about. It's that's been part of the, I think one of the barriers for us working together, you know, is being called unsafe. So again, I'll play devil's advocates, except for these suicides, right? So if you're really that safe, what are you doing having that quick of access in an impulsive moment? to take your own life by firearm, uh, not to mention all the inadvertent ones by the non-firearm owner, by you know the, the teenager who accesses the weapon or whatever. So Walk Talk America's job is to go educate people on safety. Right, <laughs> In but a very access, paradoxical way, right? Right, access to lethal means though, right? So I think the average person hears safety and they're like, I, I'm safe. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm very safe with my firearm. Yep, follow all the rules at the range. The NRA has posted them for years yet, yeah, except they're not thinking of access to lethal means. Right. right. And especially in a time of crisis. Right. And we talk about these things like, um, well, I mean, I have children in my house. My guns have to be locked up. Um, mm-hmm. it's not even so much that I worry about my kids as more. I worry about their friends that come over or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, it's not just that I've made my kids aware. Um, I don't know their friends, so I can't have guns locked up. But what I can do is lock up my guns and with my quick access uh, safes that I have like stationed around the house, I can practice accessing my firearm just like I practice with my firearm on the range. Yes. Right? I could take that time to continue to push the buttons so I have muscle memory in my hand. Um, I can, I can unlock all my safes without even looking at them. Um, that's, that's what we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and you did, sorry, uh, you, you did a thing called cause the pause, uh, hashtag cause a pause. Um, and I, I don't know where that originated necessarily. Oh, Rob, uh, Pink. That was Rob. Rob. Okay. So the idea is that 
suicidality is an impulsive act. And we know that um, the, the ability of somebody to carry out a, suicide, a completed suicide um, diminishes rapidly after the first five to seven minutes and then even more so across 60 and beyond 60 minutes, you're, you're pretty much not suicidal anymore. So the idea is that in that moment of impulsivity, you want to create some sort of pause that prevents you from accessing the lethal means by which you'll kill yourself. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, you know, Rob had, had sent me a video one night and said, I'm thinking about this concept. And basically he was like, I'd like you to shoot a video too. And he played the video for me and I, uh, well, he sent it to me. I watched it on my phone. And I remember the first thing I did is I turned uh, to my wife and I said, watch this. And she watched it and it was basically a video of Rob making a dash. You know, you can only see his, his hands and his feet making a dash mm -hmm. towards his safe and then going to open it and seeing a photo of his daughters like that, that he put on the safe. So it was something to remind you that you have a reason to live right. something to remind you that you have a reason to stick around. And, um, you know, my wife is like, how oh, that's super powerful. And, uh, so then I cut mine. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting in my, my studio slash office. My safe has two very large photos of my beautiful daughters. Um, I, I don't, I, I do it because when people come over, it's a conversation piece. I, I, I hope I'm never in that space. I've never have been. Um, so I'm fortunate, but I still do it because it makes sense to me. Right. And then when people come over, they're like, you have two pictures of your daughters on your safe. And I explained to them that the whole, the whole movement, the concept. That's awesome. And I get it. So. That's awesome. Uh, I was moved because I saw your video. I didn't know Rob did one. Um, but that speaks to the alternate definition of safety that most firearms owners are not um, either fluent in or comfortable with, or have even been exposed to. And that's the, the safety of, distance, time and distance. And this is something that the Veterans Administration, Veterans Health Administration and, and Walk the Talk have been working on recently is that the concept of time and distance between thought of suicide and act of carrying it out. How do we create time and distance, time and space, you know, that kind of thing. Um, one of them is picture a family on the safe. That's awesome. Another one that's super unpopular within the Second Amendment community is separate your ammunition from your gun. And of course, the, the the reflexive rebuttal from that is like, well, what if somebody breaks in my house? I can't be running across my house to take, you know, get my ammunition and put it in the thing. But the idea is you don't necessarily need to do that. All you got to do is like have the magazine two shelves down from your gun. And then at least you have to pick both of them up and put it in and then chamber the round before like that's three or four steps before executing your own life cause a pause, put time and space between like nobody's, nobody's asking you to like store things all around the house. Never mind the fact that we could have a, a debate about how likely it is that somebody's going to kick in your door at three in the morning and like want to steal your daughter's like, you know, Liam Neeson and taken. That's not going to happen. It's statistically insignificant, but it's still a fear in the minds of, of firearms owners such that they want these, you know, loaded guns staged around their house unsecured for their teenage kids to go explore. Um, and so that's a, an alternate definition of safety that we want to discuss. We want to bring to the table. We want to have reasonable conversations about so that we're no longer 
operating in our silos, right? Um, and, and then hopefully that conversation begets the, why would I need time and space? And then somebody like me, the mental health professional steps into the ring and goes, well, here's why. Because not everybody thinks like you. And some days you don't think like you. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, wouldn't it be great if it's an insurance policy? Uh, insurance policy against what? Accidental death. And so, and, and that's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. And we know that the ripple effect from, from a suicide affects, you know, hundreds of people. So, um, yeah, those are all really important things. Let's, let's grab another, uh, uh, frequently asked question here before we, uh, sign up. Cause I know we're getting a little long winded here. I don't know what people's attention span is for listening I, I, I to you and I just, two. so let's you do one. And then I got something I want you, to, I, I want to bring up to you again. Okay. Cool. So um, something that we're really proud about is uh, that we're doing a, a training for clinicians. And I mentioned that earlier, I, at least I, I just tangentially alluded to it. So what Walk the Talk America is doing is we're, we're doing firearms, cultural competency trainings for mental health practitioners that are good for continuing education credit with their licensing renewals. So it checks many boxes. It checks the suicide prevention box if your state requires that. It checks the cultural competency box if your state requires that. And overall, it just helps to grow your knowledge. So we've got a three-part series. Um, So far, we've only executed part one, and we're moving that now online, which is super cool. But one of the questions Kevin asked is, what does a mental health professional need to know on why your training program is important for them to go through? Um, I think... As I said before, if we're looking at roughly half the country owning or living with somebody who owns a firearm, we, we just can't be that ignorant about that much of our clientele base. That's it. Now, if you want more justification, I'll continue to say that these continuing education courses are very, very low cost. Um, sometimes they're as low as like 50 bucks for three hours. Uh, sometimes they're as low as free, depending on who we get to sponsor them. Uh, so you contribute to your own education, uh, your own growth, your own development, but also your license renewal. Beyond that, what you're doing is you're inviting in firearms owning clients to your clinical center, whether that's an agency or your own private practice. Because if you can go through our classes and if you take all three of them, we give you a big fat certificate that says, you know, certified uh, gun competent uh, person or something thereabouts, what you go, what you, what you do then is you go advertise yourself to the second amendment loving community or all the police officers who are skittish about coming in and getting counseling and not being well received or the military veterans or active duty personnel who maybe aren't comfortable with the VA hospital or um, they just aren't comfortable with mental health treatment in general. They know that you're a safe space for them to come and say, look, I got this thing. I got this other thing, there's firearms in between, and know that you're not going to judge them or reject them. What better way to grow the profession, grow your own brand, and help more people? I think it's awesome. I don't think I need to say anymore, but I'm already bought in. So, uh, Mike, what do you think a mental health professional needs to know on why our training program is important for them to, to take? Well, I think they just need to understand that it's a culture. Right. And I think some people, I mean, we've had students, I call them students, right. But I mean, we've had mental health professionals come in and, and legitimately say like, I didn't even realize there was a culture. Uh, Yeah. 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 
and it, it, to understand gun people, like to understand, um, I know both of uh, you and I are fans of Rob's breakdown of how he uses cars. Yes. Like you tell that story better than I do. So, yeah, I can. That's fine. Um, so people who don't really understand the gun culture, gun community, Rob Pincus, and I'm stealing from him. So I'll give him credit. One of these days he'll be on the show and uh, we can stop referring to him in third person. because <laughs> He'll actually be here, but he says, uh, gun culture is very much like car culture. Uh, car culture, at least in America has many different facets. Uh, some people, uh, just own a car to drive it to work and it's not a thing. It's just a tool for the job. Uh, same as a firearm. It might be uh, just a tool you use for your job if you're a police officer and you're not really a, you know, into any of the other aspects of it. Or if you just want it for home defense or personal defense and you, you carry concealed, it's just a tool. It's not a thing. Uh, I, I tend to fall in that category. Now, there are other people who collect cars. There are people who collect guns. There are people who polish and shine and restore cars. There are people who polish and shine and restore guns. There are people who get cars handed down to them and they, and they, uh, they take very loving care of them because they mean something of significance, uh, as a family heirloom, something like that. Same thing with firearms. There are people who soup up their cars to see how fast they can go. Same thing with firearms. Some people decorate their cars. They swap out parts. They re-engineer them. Um, they, they cut them in half. Same thing with firearms. The, the analogies are almost perfect. Uh, gun, guns to cars. And so if you can understand and appreciate how people would be interested in, in car culture, you can understand and appreciate how people might be into gun culture. And for me, that was a, a mind-blowing moment because I grew up in a family full of cops. The gun was a tool for the job. Uh, I have several friends and family who are both active duty and retired military. And I was never into the culture. And when I went to shot show in 2020 with Mike, where I'm pretty sure I caught COVID. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, uh, we, we got a, a booth from NSSF, which is the national shooting sports uh, foundation uh, to, to promote walk, talk America and mental health and all this stuff. And I got to walk around this trade show. I love trade shows, but this is a, trade show to be at all trade shows There's a hundred thousand people float through there. Uh, and there was a graphic, a, an infographic that said that if you wanted to visit every booth at shot show for the four days that it was, uh, running and you started at 8am and you finished at 5pm when the doors opened, the doors closed and you visited every booth, you would spend 27 seconds at every booth. I was like, Holy crap. Like yep. that, it blew my four straight days. And you wouldn't get to have a real conversation. You just basically like, ah, cool stickers. All right. Uh, see ya on the next one. And you never took a lunch break. You never stopped to pee and you never had a real conversation. Uh, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. But when I was at shot, I realized this is what I didn't get. Now I get it. I get why people are so into this stuff because there's really pretty equipment. There's really cool high tech stuff. Um, and then I also understood why I'm not into it. <laughs> I, I just don't care about form. I care about function. And I do the same thing with my cars, as it turns out. I don't care what my car looks like. Uh, yes, I'll keep it waxed, but only protect, to protect the paint. <laughs> like, right, I, right. I'm not interested in all the bells and whistles. I just want it to do what it's supposed to do and have, have preferably be fuel efficient. So, um, yeah, I thought that was a really good analogy. I'm thankful to Rob for it, and I tell it to as many people as I can. Yeah, no, it's great. Okay, so uh, to kind of wrap this up, I want to leave it uh, with one question 
to you. Um, there's something that you say all the time. When I first heard it, I, it was it was hard for me to understand it, and it was really shocking. Um, and I think it's something that people need to hear because I think it gives people hope. But you've you've always kind of said that all mental illness is temporary, or my job would cease to exist. So can you talk about that? Um, I, yeah, this is the moment right here because yeah, I think I, I do say that. And it is controversial, um, but not without merit. So some people will, will have been told over their lives that um, once diagnosed with certain disorders, uh, you're, all, you're always going to have that thing, and uh, all you can do is ever manage it. There is some legitimacy to that line of thought. And where I often go with mental illness, because it's so hard to conceptualize for most people, I go to a physical illness because that's very easy to conceptualize. The eyes can see it, the brain can understand it. Mental illness, you know, what, what is the mind anyway? We can't, we can't really point to it, we can't quantify it, and it makes it challenging. And not to mention all the stigma that's come through over the years. So let's take a broken arm. Um, I have, I, until I was almost 40 years old, I was 39 years old before I had my first broken arm, or a broken bone, sorry. And it ended up being a, a broken, uh, uh, bone in my, in my hand. So I broke one of the, the, the metacarpals and, um, I ended up having to have a cast and it was really inconvenient because right at the time my, uh, my, my second son was born. So like three years ago and, um, I had to hide the, the cast from the pictures of the newborn baby and all this stuff. So people will walk around and say, I am bipolar. I am ADHD. He is schizophrenic. And the interesting thing, and I promise I'll get back to the broken bone in a minute if it sounds like I'm, I'm rabbit trailing here. The interesting thing about the, the phrase uh, to be or the infinitive verb to be in English, uh, it sounds very permanent because we only have one version. In other languages, uh, uh, many of the Romance languages, for example, is Spanish, there's two different versions. There's a temporary and a permanent. So if you're familiar with this, uh, the ser version, S-E-R, uh, in Spanish of to be is permanent. Soy hombre. Yo soy hombre. I'm a man. That's not really going to change unless I choose to change and identify as a woman or I go through some crazy tragic accident where I lose my identifying sexual genitalia or something like that. I'm a man. It's very permanent. But then there's the estar version, E-S-T-A-R. Um, if I say estoy uh, enfermo, I am sick. It means I am temporarily sick. I will eventually be not sick. I'll be healthy once the illness clears up. In English, when we say I am, all of it sounds very permanent. And we identify that with like characterological traits that are very permanent. So take, for example, you know, Bob the accountant. I am an accountant. I am an accountant. I am an accountant. That's this, this is narrative throughout life. And this is often why we get existential crises. We approach retirement and we've identified ourselves with our jobs for so long that we don't know who we are separate and apart from our jobs. We, we have we have a real tough time retiring because we don't know who we're going to be. And a lot of people, when they finally are forced to retire, they actually die. They, they expire. And this is a very, very macabre way of framing it. But public employees retirement system benefits typically are a gambling game. So is, so is life insurance where they say, we're going to bet that you're going to die before you can cash out your policy. And the reason that these public employee retirement benefits programs 
are still flush is because most people are not beating the average. And I think the average in Nevada, for example, is like seven years. You're going to die seven years after you retire. Uh, if you don't, you make more money than you put in. If you do, the system keeps the money. And it's really sad because in America, in English, we have this I am, my identity, whatever follows after it. So if we apply that to a diagnosis, for example, I am bipolar. Well, who am I if I, if I ever heal? I don't know. It's frightening. And, and if I'm a parent and my kid is ADHD and I am his caretaker and he is only limited by whatever his diagnosis is, what happens when he heals? I lose my identity too as his caretaker. He suddenly has potential. So let's go back to the broken bone. Nobody walks around going, I am a broken bone. I am a headache. I am pneumonia. Nobody says that because we all presume that it's, it's healable. We do that with mental illness because it makes it easier for our brains to comprehend it. But unfortunately, it's inaccurate and it's very limiting. Um, I, I, I've subscribed to this uh, phrase that I heard a long, long time ago from a mentor of mine who's a very good friend, Christian Conti, Dr. Christian Conti. He's, um, you can find him at drchristianconti.com, C-O-N-T-E is his last name. He's producing amazing stuff. But he once said, to define is to confine. So if I define myself as my diagnosis, I've just confined myself to that. I don't want to confine myself. I, I believe in the infinite capacity of human potential. So here's the thing about mental illness is temporary. If it weren't and you were just afflicted for the rest of your life, I would not have a job. My profession would cease to exist because you couldn't heal. In fact, you could, there's an argument to be made that you could only go downhill and regress. Uh, so I, I just choose not to believe in that cause I, I think it's stupid and I guess I will judge that line of thinking, uh, that people can't recover. I think it's dumb. The entire healthcare system would not exist if people couldn't recover. So I just reject that wholesale. However, there is some substantial evidence that suggests that, um, we have genetic predispositions to certain illnesses like diabetes for the physical end of things or like schizophrenia or alcoholism for the, the mental slash addiction end of things. However, that doesn't mean that you're destined for that permanently for the rest of your life. So maybe you do have a predilection, a family history of falling into mental illness. We, you know, we, we always do the interview. Is there any history of mental illness in your family? I'm like, who gives a rip? Like, let's make our own decisions. Okay, so you, you, you were raised in a family full of people who are inconsistent and held poor boundaries and uh, made a lot of chaos in your life. Of course, you're going to come out of that with some anxiety. Of course, you're going to come out of that with you know, flirting with a personality disorder. Of course, you're going to want to drink more than you don't because that's how you deal with the chaos and the inconsistency and the boundary you know, uh, breaking and, and the molestation and the violence and the chaos, all that stuff, right? Of course, you're going to want to have bad coping skills like anxiety and depression and, and substance abuse. It doesn't mean that they're permanent because again, goes another phrase. It's very popular and it's ages old. Once you become aware, you can no longer become unaware. So the child that's born into that chaotic, abusive, neglectful environment does what he or she does to tolerate it until he or she lands in my office. And I go, Hey, by the way, did you realize that you don't have to live this way? And then they go, really? Well, now they're aware. Now they have a choice. Do you want to continue in the same pattern or do you want to do something different? And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm oversimplifying and I get that. 
but it is possible. And so I want to hold the possibility out there that people aren't imprisoned by their mental illnesses. And I think that's very, very important, uh, not just because it's a good idea and it's uplifting and encouraging, but because scientifically, we know from the study of uh, neuroscience and the idea of neuroplasticity and epigenetics that even if your genetics predispose you to something, even if your brain has been warped over time, it can heal itself. You can regenerate brain cells. You can alter your own genes just the way that the environment altered them to the point where you entered the world. You can be the link to the next generation for altering them yet again. You can invite in peace, you can invite in tranquility, you can invite in happiness, and you can literally change your own family's lineage because epigenetics works both ways. Neuroplasticity works both ways. And I find that to be very, very inspiring. It's really, it's really encouraging and it keeps me doing what I'm doing. I don't ever want to uh, throw my hands in the air and say, ah, this, this, one's, this one's a goner. Um, I've seen too many times people who I've encountered who have seen therapists after therapists or have been you know, living in group homes and just cast off as second-class citizens actually make awesome progress and move out of their anxieties, out of their uh, psychosis, um, and into peace and tranquility and harmony. And it's really, really cool. So that's why I say that mental illness is temporary. It doesn't mean that it's brief. You could struggle with it for a long time. Um, after all, most people, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s didn't just get there overnight. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have to work the same amount of time to get undone from it. Uh, it just means it's going to take some effort, uh, like any habit that you're trying to change. So I, I, I do state that openly. I state it very loudly. I am not afraid of saying it. I say it in front of lots of people who study this uh, in lots of different ways. And they go, oh, well, okay, Jake. Yeah, but you know, some people just have to manage their symptoms. I'm like, all right, that's cool. But they're recovering. And to put a punctuation mark on this, I am uh, holding my Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental uh, Illness here, Mental Disorders from the American Psychiatric Association, uh, Association, American Psychiatric Association, uh, DSM-5 is what it's called. And that's like the, uh, the handbook by which we diagnose people. Um, all diagnoses have criteria. You have to meet the criteria in order to be diagnosed and bill insurance. Once you no longer meet criteria, you're no longer diagnosable, which means you no longer have a mental disorder. So I'm not really interested in having a conversation about how somebody thinks that they need ongoing treatment. Um, I'm interested in what's actually observable and reportable. Um, if they're still struggling and they need treatment, then great, let's keep treating them, but let's keep moving toward a goal, and that goal being full recovery, not just cycling people onto the calendar in perpetuity so that I keep my wallet fat and they never heal. That's not ethical, it's not appropriate, and it's discouraging. So. Yeah, and I think Enough that, of the soliloquy. <laughs> no, no, I, I I put you on there for a reason because I, you know, and that was perfect. Um, and I think that there, there's a lot of tie-in to Walk the Talk America and mental health and firearms, right? Like people, and we've we've had this when in future guests on this show, we probably address it with them. But you know, people feeling down and saying, "Well, I can't be around firearms anymore," and that's just simply not yeah. true. You know, um, you, you, it's a, it's temporary, get back to where you need to be. And then you can enjoy the things in life that make you feel good. Just, you know, 
Um, so I think it's, it's awesome. And I, I love that, that you brought that into my life. Cause I never thought that way because I was that guy that was just like, okay, you bipolar disorder. You're always going to be bipolar. Um, yeah. and just something depressing about that in itself. Yeah. And, and if, and if this is striking people as like incongruous with what their beliefs or their orthodoxy tell them, please reach out to me and I'm more than happy to explain any single one of these diagnoses. You're like, well, I have a friend who has bipolar disorder and um, tell me how he can overcome it. I'll gladly have that five minute conversation with you because it's literally a whiteboard demonstration on the concept of how that's possible. Um, And to date, zero people have disagreed with me. So like, I don't, I don't ever want to believe that anybody's so far gone. I mean, earlier I referenced the infinite potential for human capacity. If it's infinite, then then it's infinite. Like I'm not going to be the one to put a limit on that and say that you can't. How arrogant of me. Oh, that's awful. It's a terrible message to send too. Yeah. Well, I think we've uh, come to the end of the road here on episode one. I think this is a good opportunity for us to kind of make the introduction. Obviously um, in the future, uh, we're looking to have guests on, uh, you know, it's not going to be just me and you rambling back and forth like we do every day. God forbid. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm excited for the future in terms of what this show can do, because I think that um, this could be a real eye opener for a lot of people uh, from both sides. Uh, I hope so, man. And, um, you know, one other thing I'd like to say is that, like, there's not an ideal, right? There's not an ideal for mental wellness. Um, it's whatever you think you think is mentally well. Uh, it's, it's super arrogant of the clinical community to step in to somebody's life and go, you need help. And they're like, do I really though? Like uh, life seems to be going okay. Like nobody else around me is complaining about me um, to, you know, to see it from our perch and say that somebody needs help is really not only impractical, but very judgmental. Um, cause, cause each individual is on his or her own path and we want to respect that and we want to honor those paths, uh, to their, to their fullest integrity. If you're on your path, you're healthy, you're, you're doing it. That's awesome. If you're on your path and you're not healthy and you're not doing it, keep working, man. Like just, just keep at it. Like until you get to where you want to be, keep moving. There we go. <laughs> that sounds good. You want to add anything? And no, I think I think we nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> like Pinterest. All right, I'm gonna stop the recording then. Well, I'm Jake and he's Mike. And on behalf of Walk the Talk America, thank you for listening to our podcast. We invite you to join us on our quest to join together the cultures of guns and mental health. And as always, we can't do it without your support. Please feel free to donate to our cause. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. And share this with other friends and family members because all this good information doesn't do any good locked up in our hands. Thanks for listening.